0: Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rapplich and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Uh, I need to confess something to the listeners of this podcast. I've spent the past three to four years looking intensely at the area of terrorism and security studies, particularly um, areas where bad guys get money. And one of the books I've relied on uh, fairly extensively is one written by my guest today, uh, Jody Bittori is a world-renowned expert in the area of terrorism and financing. Her book, uh, "Terrorist Financing and Resourcing," is used by a lot of people all over the place uh, to look at the area of uh, the way in which bad guys get money to do bad things. I'm grateful and privileged to have Jody talking to me today, looking at what terrorists do, how they get money to do it, and what kinds of things we might see develop uh, in, in the future in the area of terror financing? Jody, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so
1: much for having me here. And thank you for the lovely compliments for, and the introduction.
0: Uh, uh, absolute pleasure. And you do deserve it. Now, before we get into the subject matter in more detail, there'll be people who listen to this who won't be familiar with your career. How would that look? Um, if you were to craft a, craft a resume on the back of, a, back of an envelope?
1: Sure. Uh, it's been an unusual career, and I would never have predicted uh, as a young cadet going to the Air Force Academy that, this, that I would have ended up working on terrorism finance and illicit financial flows and corruption and all of that together. Um, I became interested in, of course, like everyone else after 9-11, um, was in the military at the time, and I was fortunate enough to be sponsored by the Air Force to go get a PhD. And I found that nobody was looking from a academic level at the time on how terrorism finance actually works and the history of terrorism finance and the trends in terrorism finance. And so I was very fortunate to be able to uh, study that and write my book on that and and continue to use it working in Iraq when I was in the military working on related issues in a counterterrorism task force in Afghanistan. And then when I left the military, I joined civil society working for Global Witness and then Transparency International on, on still the same issues. How do illicit financial flows affect national security, affect terrorism, insurgency and conflict and so on.
0: So been, you, so your interest peaked in this area when 9-11 happened?
1: Yes, I'd been somewhat interested in it before with some of the the Red Army faction stuff and all that from the 70s, but really, 911 piqued my interest. Um, you know, I, I was an Air Force intelligence officer, and you know, how could that not be interesting at the time? Um, and there was amazing newspaper articles and stuff coming out, but there wasn't there was very, very little out there on terrorism finance from a real academic perspective. In the US, I was the second PhD dissertation that was accomplished on terrorism finance. Um, and this was in 2008, or excuse me, 19, pardon me. Um, it was finished in, what year did I finish, graduate in? Um, oh, it was in 2008, sorry. Uh, I finished in 2008 and, you know, while again, tons of books, tons of New York Times articles, but not a lot of actual study. And there was a frustration as well that I was seeing people report on, you know, this is new, whatever it would be, um, using front companies for terrorism, or being involved in in construction companies and, and funneling money to terrorism. And people would make these pronouncements that this was new. And I was going through these histories of these different terrorist groups going, you know, not only is this not new, but sometimes this has been going on for over a century. So I, I really was delighted to have the opportunity to write a book that that could explore that in much more detail and, and pull it out of everything that Al Qaeda was doing was new because some of it was new, but most of it had been done for years. And they were building on very solid terrorism finance foundations for them.
0: How much of the work in terms of research for the book was done by you looking at, uh, sort of organized crime and the way in which transnational organized crime groups work because it would seem to me from reading your book and from reading other material that there are commonalities in the way people get money.
1: Yes, excuse me, and that's how I ended up actually working on the broader illicit financial flows issues. Um, When I was in Afghanistan, I was brought into Afghanistan to a Counter-corruption task force because I had a I had a background in terrorism finance and had worked on these issues in Iraq. And they wanted to understand the role of corruption and you know how the Taliban were getting money and able to do what they could do and so forth at the time. And whether it's terrorist organizations or whether it's corrupt politicians or whether it's organized crime groups, they use the same processes and often the same very specific facilities. So just to give one example from my time in Afghanistan, um, in 2010, this massive bank scandal uh, was uncovered uh, with the, the main bank in Afghanistan called Kabul Bank. Um, and part of that bank, which was also linked to Hawala's, this, this informal, value, informal value trade system, um, they were moving money for basically anybody. Um, they would, you know, we were, the United States and Western countries was using Kabul bank to pay, um, everything from school teachers to most of the military forces receive their money via Kabul bank bank branches and bank transfers. But the Taliban were also moving their money through it. Uh, corrupt warlords and politicians, the Karzai family and so forth, they were moving their money through it. Matter of fact, um, the bank was linked to 19 key families and tribal groups in Afghanistan. Um. Narcotics traffickers were moving money through it. Uh, whatever whatever illegal activity you could imagine was going through this bank and they were intermixing these money and moving this money, often uh, moving it from there to Dubai and from there allowing it to enter the international bank system. So it was, it was a real lesson that um, you, you can't just look at terrorism finance in a vacuum because there were so many other characters using the same processes and stuff. It's rare that you find... Just for example, a bank that launders terrorist funds. Almost always, they're running funds for a whole bunch of bad guys all at one time. Because frankly, it's profitable. You can you can charge a premium um, if you engage in this, you know, riskier activity. Um, you know, high risk equals high reward for certain for certain key uh, economic actors and facilitators out there.
0: Uh, Jenny, it, it, for those people who are not. Uh, familiar with or don't have a regular interaction with bad people who shuffle money around, um, what are the most common ways in which uh, bad actors, in this case terrorists, um, use to obtain funds and move, move funds around? Is there some common ways in which it's done? And done by a lot of people, but there's also other ways that have been unique to terror networks aren't there?
1: so certainly there's um well bad actors move money in very similar ways. I will just note because terrorism is relatively inexpensive so uh you often won't see some of the some of the big movements of money and such that you would see with say um you know, organized crime and corruption networks out of Nigeria that may be moving billions of dollars. The most expensive terrorist attack in history was 9-11. That was probably about $300,000. So you're not moving very large funds. This often means you don't need to go through the very, very complicated um, money laundering processes that you would do if you were moving, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And so that is one different thing. Um, the oldest, probably the oldest way to get money besides just using your own private funds, which is incredibly common. If you're doing an inexpensive terrorist attack, there is nothing to stop you from just using your personal funds or maxing out your credit card, like we saw in um, the London subway attacks, where they just maxed out credit cards. They were It was supposed to be a suicide bombing. It wasn't like they were going to pay for them anyway in the afterlife for the credit cards. They just maxed them out. Um, relatively small <laughs> amounts, so you can do that. Um, one of the oldest ones is bank robbery, uh, and it's it was doctrine that was written by some of the Irish movements in the 1800s. That you know, wh- you rob banks because that's where the money is, and it could often be couched in a form of um, revolutionary tax, if you will, robbing from the rich to give to the poor, and all that by 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 robbing these banks and using it for terrorist and other political activity. Um, so, so those that are we, incredibly we, common.
0: So we're going down the uh, those guys are going down the Robin Hood doctrine.
1: Yes, it's it's an it's you know that's that's where the money is, so that's an easy place to do it, and that has been acknowledged since the late 1800s to rob banks. We do see some more interesting and creative processes nowadays that have gotten that are complex to people, older people like me that seem almost kind of magical, but for a younger generation are relatively easy. One of those is virtual currencies. Um, all sorts of actors are using virtual currencies, uh, you know, Al Qaeda associated groups, ISIS associated groups. There was even reports put out recently, um, not on the terrorism side, but in the organized crime side, that small village gambling in Myanmar was using virtual currencies at times to launder money. I mean, when you get to the point where small villages in Myanmar can start using these you know, relatively complex monetary systems that are outside the formal systems. It tells you that this has gotten relatively simple and common to do.
0: There's there's something else uh, that I was really keen to explore, but we can, yeah, we've covered a, a kind of a general you know, kind of mechanism of money laundering, and, and obviously there's also the uh, the money laundering tactic where people put. Put the funds into into equipment and other things to to sort of make the make the trail as cold as quickly as possible. The interesting thing that happens with uh, Islamist groups, of global jihadists, is that they kind of tried to use charities over the years, haven't they, to 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 direct or redirect funds into terror activity.
1: Yes, it's a it's a. Um... It's a common way to do it. It's got a lot of advantages in doing it. Charities give you the, think of some of the things that just charities provide you. If you work for a charity, it gives you a business address. It gives you, you know, a place for people to mail stuff to you. It gives you an excuse for having a bank account. You know, you're opening a bank account on behalf of a charity. It gives you an excuse, a legitimate excuse for moving money. Um, you know, there's money come back and forth. If you're ostensibly a charity from donors, um, You know, you're you're sending stuff out to other groups and so on. So, you know, again, with money laundering, really just being in its simplest form, um, either in the case of criminal organizations, making bad money look legitimate or at least not being able to prove that it's bad money. In the case of terrorism finance, some people call it reverse money laundering, which is you're taking good money and using it for bad purposes. In this case, the bad purpose being terrorism. Um, But either way, you're just obscuring the origins of the money. A charity is a great opportunity to do that because movements of money having an address being in a certain location, all of those are very very easily justified by being a charity. Opening charities often isn't very difficult. Um, depending on what countries you're in, you may not even need to register anything. It might just be an issue of making some some uh you know business cards and and a website and and setting yourself up as if you were a charity. Um, there's different ways you can use charities. You could set up an entire charity that's really a front for terrorism finance and for terrorist activity, or you could use just a local branch of an established charity, or even just having onesie or twosie people who, who work with the charity and are able to use that as their cover without the charity having any indication that, that those individuals were there and, and are using their positions for secondary purposes, for, for bad purposes.
0: So it's, it's very, very common now it, these things are sometimes best discussed when we look at a case study and i've um, I might be at a i might be at the advantage here because I've opened your book while you were giving me the the answer to the previous question to page seventy four and between page seventy four and seventy six uh in your chapter looking at the multinationals of terrorism you've got a really pithy Thumbnail sketch of the operations of Al Qaeda. What are the things that you saw um, in the work that you did in the various places you were with the with the military, but um, and the study? What are the things that were unique in your eyes about what Al Qaeda managed to achieve in financing?
1: Um. Al Qaeda at that time when I put the book together, and this is the classic Al Qaeda senior leadership that did the 9-11 attacks and so forth, is that they had the unique opportunity to, in in many ways, act, not just have free range of state, but in some ways were almost state sponsoring. Um, The Taliban at that time prior to 9-11 did not have a robust budgetary system and so on. And, um, you know, cash was basically kept in Mullah Omar's chest in his bedroom. So they were able to come in and act as, in many ways, financiers to the Taliban, a link with the external world, bring in construction and so forth. They promised to bring in economic development um, and provide real state-level benefits um, it, to the Taliban itself. Um, we usually talk about state capture when we talk about criminal organizations, where a criminal organization, um, where a state is used on behalf of a criminal organization. In this case, it's almost more like a terrorism capture situation, where we have a terrorist group that's able to use the institutions of the state on their behalf for international terrorism purposes. Of course, they weren't supposed to do that when they came to Afghanistan and were given shelter by the Taliban. They weren't supposed to be engaging in that sort of activity. Um, but in the, they had a, a unique amount of power in in that relationship between them and the Taliban that they were able to do a lot of things that most terrorist groups in the world probably couldn't couldn't do or get away with. I can't think of anybody, at least on the international level, that has done as much of that on a full state level. Certainly I've seen terrorist organizations take over parts of states, but not as much of a full state apparatus as they did.
0: The, the interesting thing about al-Qaeda as well um, is that uh, Osama bin Laden had um, a particular network of business people that he drew on for finance as well. Can you take us through that?
1: Sure. Um, and, and for the larger, more organized terrorist groups, that is not unique to just al-Qaeda. So other groups have done it as well. The Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, for example, the Palestine, Liber- or Palestine Liberation Organization, have done some of this as well and throughout history. Um but having these, having these international financiers who um, are sympathetic to the organization, they may not work solely for the organization, they may work for a lot of them, but provides that ability to interface with the international financial system. And that is really important for any sort of terrorist group um, who wants to be able to easily move money or other resources um, amongst locations. The You can't just go to a bank usually, at least not in the modern world nowadays, and just say, you know, here's my funds from my illicit criminal activity that I want to ship to, you know, from point A to point B to engage in terrorist activity. That's probably not going to get you through the international banking system nowadays. You need um, people who are not on watch lists who can help you move those funds that you can hand cash to or whatever, and that they can move that funding for you. And so they're a very, very important part of the international uh, for a for an international terrorist organization who wants to lose use large amounts of cash, and that's not just a terrorist thing I should note. Um, those sort of facilitators and intermediaries, whether it be accountants, um, bankers, lawyers, real estate, those are very, very important to any sort of large illicit activity that wants to move cash around the world. We see that consistently um, you know and some of these have created major leaks. And front page headlines in the world, things like the Panama Papers and so forth, where you have these intermediaries that will work with these groups to help be the be the the veil that allows these individuals to to link into the international financial system and move the cash to places they want to keep it and store it uh, until there's such a time as they want to move it elsewhere and then have access to it.
0: You've um, you've mentioned the role of facilitators, you know, people who are. Um... Who had the skill set and the know-how um, to to navigate a system on, on behalf of clients? In this case, the clients are people who want to uh, move money around either because it's a, a gain for uh, from illicit activities, or it's, it's to be used for a terrorist act or extreme political violence. Um, it, it, how much of this is, is the, the problems of you know professionals who um like the accountants in this world who who really ought to have a um a commitment to the public interest? You know, there's an ethical problem here. How much of that is prevalent in, in the work you're doing and in any observations you make?
1: Uh this has actually been one of the major areas where Anybody working on illicit finance issues, organized crime issues, anti-corruption issues, the whole series of overlapping communities on this, this is probably one of the number one priorities for how to mitigate the effects of, of terrorism finance, insurgent finance, conflict finance, counter-narcotics, you name it. If it's if it's a public bad, this is probably the number one priority because the, the role these facilitators play in moving all sorts of illicit um funds around and what those funds can then be used to purchase, whether it's, whether it's, you know, purchasing weapons for, you know, insurgency in Central Africa somewhere, or whether it's used for funds for, you know, Al Qaeda attacks or ISIS attacks, or, you know, just laundering the funds from the opioid crisis in the United States. This is the main area we deal with, what we call the gatekeepers problem. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, just in the last couple of days, Transparency International's U.S. office put out their 21 recommendations for um, what they would like the U.S. Congress to do on a bipartisan level. And that is one of their primary recommendations. These uh, accountants, these real estate agents, these lawyers, all of these together are what really facilitate these bad actors to be able to do what they do. And in theory, in many cases, in these professions are supposed to be relatively self-regulating. That is part of the definition of a true profession if we're going back to political theorists like Huntington. Um, But oftentimes they are not self-regulating. They are not punishing their members who are involved in this sort of activity. Um, Just to give an example, um, from a corruption side of the house, uh, about 2015 or 2016, there was a 60 Minutes episode with a undercover sting done by uh, an NGO I worked for at the time called Global Witness where they went and approached 10 different law firms in New York city and did a secret recording. And they pretended to be a front man for a, um, African dictator or African politician who was involved in mining in their country. They, they didn't give a specific country. Um, and the person had a salary of an American school teacher and they wanted to buy, a, uh, I think it was a house in Manhattan, a corporate jet and a yacht. And they were approaching the law firm to see what interest that law firm would have in representing them. Nobody was technically involved in any activity, uh, illegal activity, no money changed hands, but in nine out of 10 of those law firms, or I'd have to look up the specific numbers, but in the vast, vast majority of those law firms, all but really one law firm, they all were at least willing to talk to the individual they all brought up similar ways that they could that money could be hidden, um, including through using law firms. Um, and there was only one lawyer that that actually just said, this is not for me, and basically told him to leave his office right away. Um, which really highlighted the fact that, you know, while there were these standards within, for example, the law community in the United States. Um, there was enough loopholes and no standards to enable that kind of activity to continue and there there and that activity could still occur today just like it could back when that 60 minutes episode that 60 minute sting um,
0: occurred the uh, listeners to the podcast will probably know my background because I've got my my bio and, and what you said disturbs me because I've worked in a professional accounting body previously and um, and one of the things that a profession uh, is generally or should be committed to is serving the public interest. Um, what is your assessment, based on what you know up to this point, of with the conduct of various professionals? Do you do you consider that there's an, an ethical crisis in parts of the legal and accounting profession where this is concerned?
1: Uh, there certainly seems to be, that seems to be the case. Um, the accounting firms not only with, you know, accounting firms just showed up with the terrorism side before. Um, probably the classic case was with the Irish Republican Army in part because one of, the, one of the accountants was willing to be interviewed for a series of articles that was done. So we have in, tremendous information on how the accountancy actually worked in the case of the IRA, probably to a level that we don't have anywhere else. Um, But we have captured the books in other cases of, you know, with accounting like practices. Um, But also just the willingness and ability of individuals to move funds through accountancy has has really been an issue for at least 20 years. Um, You know, if you remember the famous implosion of Arthur Anderson after the Enron scandal, for example,
0: Absolutely, um, I reported on it at the time.
1: <laughs> see, so oh yeah, that's right, you did. So, um, you know, you know, these the, these these have been issues for a long time that are that are building up. I I see it particularly come up, at least in the popular media, especially in the United Kingdom, because they've had a number of companies that have had a clean bill of health that then imploded right after. That has brought that really to the fore. There's also been the issue of accounting firms that are, you know, um, also selling consultancy firms. Services at the same time, um, and there's just a principal-agent problem and a conflict of interest problem in that the accountancy firm is often paid for by the company, um, so the comp, the accountancy firm has an incentive in ensuring the books look appropriate, um, and at the same time, um, you know the accountancy or the company is likely to pick accountancy firms that will ensure the books look proper. Um, we've had other cases, for example, with um, um, DMCC in Dubai, with credible allegations that um, their their um, certification firm and accounting firm—I forget which one it was off the top of my head now—was um, adjusting their audits of um, of DMCC because it was trying to get a clean bill of health to be able to be linked into um, the key London. Um, Um, metals exchange you have there are certain standards you have to meet when it comes to conflict gold and stuff like that um, preventing conflict gold from coming into your system which of course oftentimes conflict gold includes insurgent gold and terrorism finance related gold so that's why we care from a terrorism finance perspective Um, our accountancy firm was willing to to adjust their findings to meet the needs of that company um so this has come up quite a bit. These gatekeepers are incredibly important when it comes to any sort of illicit financial issues. And classical neoclassical economics says that reputational risks should be enough to keep them um relatively honest. But we've seen in scandal after scandal that um that may not be the case, really starting with Arthur Anderson and Enron.
0: Yeah, I um I'm very familiar with the Enron case. Not only did I write about it at the time it happened. And also you had Parmalat, and then down in Australia you had the collapse of HIH uh, and other companies around the same same time. Um, That's an extraordinary period. And, and I, I'm very mindful of the time, Jody, and the, you've been very generous um, in, in making it. There's something that amazed me when I started looking at this area, um, and that is the near meticulous nature of the way in which organizations like al-Qaeda, and I suspect it's the case with others, establish an internal audit process. These guys, guys, you know, go out of their way to blow things up, but they run their their operation as if they're uh, um, a major conglomerate. did that surprise you when you looked at finance, the way in which they manage their finances?
1: Uh, it, it doesn't surprise me for the really large ones that take a long-term view. So if you're going to be, you know, kind of going back to our London subway bombers example, if you're going to be this, unfortunately, one shot, one kill example, where you're going to kind of just do one an attack and go out in a blaze of glory, your financial system isn't terribly important. You can, you know, again, run up your credit cards or whatever to make that work. But if you're going if you want to be around as an organization and for 10, 20, 30 years and you have number of fighters and so on, you have to establish relatively quickly a proper um, a proper financial system, including a proper accountancy system. And one of the most interesting case studies I found was that that Irish Republican Army case study, again, from their early days where they had all this money coming into the IRA and they were the money was going in. They couldn't track it. And. They, had a, they were actually having operational issues because, because they couldn't move the money and they didn't know where it was and they couldn't track it and make sure things were funded properly. They had um, members doing stupid bank robberies and stuff like that that was getting these guys arrested and thrown in jail and they were losing their operational capabilities and then they had to pay money for lawyers and stuff like that while they were in jail or to get them through the court cases. And it was becoming unsustainable for the IRA. So they literally sat down, and being the IRA, it was in a pub, Um, And decided that they had to come up with a formal system and get accountants and make an actual special financing unit that would get them funds for the organization, the accountants to do the double entry bookkeeping and and what the front companies were and everything and make sure the money was distributed efficiently. Um, And that's not uncommon for any of the large groups you use. Um, you have just like any corporation or any sort of enterprise, if you're going to be large and have people spread out and you want to keep it working for a long time, you're going to have to have an efficient finance system. So Al Qaeda had an efficient one. LTTE had one. PLO had a very effective one. a matter of fact, they were, um, back in the sixties and seventies where computers were just coming online. They were one of the first to start actually using computers to track some of their financing. Um, it, it, it's it's really remarkable for those with a long term vision of what they want to do, will very early um, put into a, a solid auditing process to make sure that they can track the money going in, and it's also a means of control. Um, if you have money coming from the central headquarters, you can you can use that money, provide it or take it away, to make sure sales do what you want them to do, provided they don't have they provided they can't replace your funding. Um, you know, if they can if they can go completely independent with their funding, they can tell the headquarters to go away. But for those who are re- reliant on their headquarters, and if the headquarters can keep those cells reliant on them, it gives them a tremendous amount of con- command and control. So, another reason you'll see auditing going on in those situations. Very important yeah, to yeah. large organizations.
0: The the accounts in your book and elsewhere of the uh, of the Sinjar papers that were that are obtained by uh, Western forces uh, are very interesting, just looking at the fact that the mere purchase of a piece of equipment got <laughs> attracted questions from um, someone in the organisation, which is which is kind of interesting to me. It, it was a juxtaposition in my mind when I first looked at it. And these guys are blowing stuff up. Why in heaven's name do they have this structure? There's a reason they want to stick around for a bit longer. Um, Jody, as I said before, we're mindful of the time. I know and I'm grateful for you taking time out this evening. Um, if people wanted to pick up a copy of your book or any of your other work, where could they where could they find it?
1: Um, that's a good question. Um, the book is available on Amazon, and I think there's a rental or downloadable version now. Um, or any similar site. Um, unfortunately, I don't control the price that they they charge for it. Um, I'm a price taker, not a price maker. Um, but other works of mine, most of which are actually free, actually near, I think everything I have now is free just about. I do a tremendous amount of my work um, with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which of course is all open access. Um, I just let a co-led a project that looked at the role of Dubai uh, for all sorts of illicit financial flows, including terrorism financing there, Um, a multi-author project um, for those who are interested in things like the role of gold in conflict uh, and how one makes money off of conflict gold. There's a fascinating chapter in there on that. There's a really good chapter um, by some former members of the Afghan threat finance cell on Kabul Bank in there, um, how free trade zones and other free zones are used in Dubai but also as a model for other parts of the world how real estate is used and so forth um, so you know that's completely free and online a lot of my work is that way I've done some stuff with the council on foreign relations and others as well so with the exception of the book everything else is free
0: well on that note Jodi Bittori uh, thank you so much for joining me for this particular podcast
1: oh it's my pleasure this was delightful thank you so much
0: Absolute pleasure on my part too. And for the listeners, I'll be back with another podcast in the next little while.